Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. The best chapter on resurrection in the Bible is got to be 1 Corinthians 15. In it, the Apostle Paul masterfully lays out the Christian position on resurrection while overcoming common objections in the culture. It turns out people living in Corinth thought the idea of resurrection was pretty bizarre. But how can we uncover what they thought about the afterlife in Corinth? Well, we can look at tombstone inscriptions, Plato's Phaedo, an ancient philosophical text, and Celsus, who wrote a book criticizing Christianity to get a sense for why the Corinthians balked at resurrection. However, there's no way around it. In the end, if we get rid of our belief in resurrection, then Jesus himself is not raised and our faith is worthless. But since Jesus is risen, we know that resurrection is possible and it, and it awaits God's people on the last day. Here now is Podcast 80, Resurrection People, a study of 1 Corinthians 15. All right, so we're going to 1 Corinthians 15, and I want to look at the subject of resurrection today. I was listening to the radio the other day, and there was a, a singer uh, who, who had been an alcoholic, and she was on the radio talking about her, her life story and how, you know, when she first started out, she, she moved to New York City, naturally, and she got this puny little closet called an apartment. And just barely was able to make it, but she was, she was hitting the booze pretty hard. And uh, along with that, she, she, she eventually caught her break and became, uh, you know, started getting jobs. And she was able to move, and move up to a better apartment. And eventually she was able to quit drinking and get her life cleaned up. And she was talking about her, her boyfriend, I, th- I think it was a boyfriend, some, some man she had a relationship with during this whole time. And uh, the interviewer asked her, you know, well, how, how is it that you ended up breaking up with the guy? You know, you finally had everything straightened out. You had a nice apartment. You were clean. And now you break up with him. And she said, I think our relationship just suffered too much damage during that, that rocky time. And it just, there was no coming back from it. And I was thinking about the idea of a lost cause. And I, this, this, this next story involves my sister. I used to have a 1993 white Pontiac Sunbird. It was my first, wasn't my first car, but it was, it was really uh, the, the first car that I wasn't embarrassed in um, <laughs> in front of my friends. And so, uh, and this, the Sunbird, you know, it flies, okay? So we were, we were flying around those curves up by Silver Bay, probably going a little too fast. And, you know, I know how to drive in the snow, I mean, I'm from around here. So that's not a problem. But there was some sort of oil slick that I hit. And it's in the middle of the summer. And the back of my car just started going like this. You know, I'm driving straight, but the back's going like this. And that's not good. So I had no idea what to do. And then a tree stopped us. You remember that, Joel? Joel was in the passenger seat, and the, uh, the tree hit her door. Actually, it was the car that hit the tree. The tree didn't move, I'll be honest, all right? <laughs> but we crashed right into that tree, and it, it, it messed up my car really bad, really badly. And so uh, the, the whole door was dented in where she was uh, sitting, and we, we turned out to be all right. But later on, I got a picture of the car, because it had to be towed, and it was sitting there in a junkyard, and you had to deal with the insurance and so on. And I got a picture of it, and, you know, the car was pretty messed up. And the insurance company said, you know what, that car, it's a lost cause. We're going to give you money, and you buy yourself a new car. I said, okay, sounds like a plan. And that was when, the next thing, I, and then the third thing I thought of as far as like a lost cause or something that, you know, just gets to a point where you wouldn't want to fix it anymore, is sometimes people get infections, like in their legs or their arms or, or something like that, or, or their, their bones will be so severely broken that there's just no putting it back together. And a doctor will make the decision to amputate. And they'll say, well, look, you've got an infection. We can't stop it. You, you're going to die or else we're going to cut off your leg. 
And in that kind of situation, what do you do? You, you know, you, you just get your leg cut off because it's better to have one leg than to be dead, right? And uh, the doctor might say, well, that, that leg, you know, that, this situation is, is just, it's unredeemable. We can't fix it. It's broken. It's, it's done. We just need to cut it off. And so I was thinking about the human body and this whole resurrection idea in 1 Corinthians 15 is the idea, or the question I'm asking is, is the human body a lost cause? Is it, I mean, because let's face it, it's kind of like a banana. Right? You buy a banana, what color is it? Well, usually it's green. If you buy a yellow, you better eat it quick. But uh, usually they're green or, or almost yellow, or maybe you like to buy them yellow. I don't know. I'm not trying to mess with your banana purchasing strategies this morning. But you buy a banana, right? And then eventually it becomes yellow. And when it's yellow, that's when you eat it. But then, you know, bananas are perishable. Okay, they're a good example of perishable because they start to get little spots on them, right? And then over time, they get more spots and more spots and more spots until they start to get a little mushy, right? And so they they start to perish on you. And then they get to the the stage where it's good for nothing except what? Banana bread, bread, right? (laughs) But you wouldn't want to eat a banana bread banana, right? I mean, you just, I mean, you, you, can, you can turn it into bread. But then eventually, even if, even if there's a stage beyond banana bread where it starts to stink and really rot and there are flies on it and it's just disgusting, right? And so a lot of people think the human body is like a banana and that it's perishable, and then it goes bad, you know, eventually as you get older, you start getting spots on you. And then, you know, you die. After you die, you start to get flies and smell bad. And then, you know, people just put you in the ground, you know. And I think we're here to say today, and 1 Corinthians 15 is here to tell us that that's not the end of the story. That that's not really... The, the way it's all going to turn out. So in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, we read this incredibly ancient creed that was passed on to the Apostle Paul and that he had delivered to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So that's step number one, that Christ died for our sins. Christ means King of the Kingdom. It means Messiah, the one destined to return and Take everything wrong with the world and make it right. That's what Christ means. And so the ruler of the age to come died for our sins. That's point number one. And the next point is verse four. And he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So that he was buried. These are historical facts. I mean, it's theological to say his death is for our sins. But the fact that he died is a historical fact. Either it happened or it didn't happen. It's a historical fact. And then the second point, that he was buried, you know, very typical thing that happened to dead people, right? You get buried. And then on the third day, something totally strange happens. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but he, he came back to life. He was raised from the dead. That is very unusual. And that's according to the scriptures. But what's interesting here, verse 5, is that he, he showed up to people. He appeared to people. Verse 5 says, He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. But then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. This short statement of faith is what we call a creed. It's a creed because it, it, it follows a certain formula, a certain rhythm, it's, it's got these and that's in it. You notice it says that he, uh, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day and that he appeared, you know, and that and that and that. And so it's a creedal uh, formula to it. It's, it's designed to be memorized. It's designed to be learned in an oral culture, unlike our culture where we write things down or email them or put them on our electronic devices to remember them. In their culture, you actually memorize things. Because there wasn't paper and most people couldn't write anyhow. And so you, you, you want to put things in a way that they're easy to memorize. And so this statement, Paul says in verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received it. Um, he says he received it and he delivered it to them. Now who, who's the them here? No, no. 
Corinthians. Very good. So Corinth is a city in Greece. Uh, they actually uh, founded a new one. There's Neo-Corinth now. But uh, ancient Corinth is, was, was in Greece as well. And it was a city that was founded uh, as a Roman colony. At, at the time here, it was a, a Roman colony. And the people there are receiving this letter. Now, Paul had visited them before. And so we know this letter was written in the 50s. Okay, not 1950s. Not even the 1850s. Not even 150, but just the 50s. As in the first century, when this letter was written. And so he said, I delivered to you this statement of faith back in the 50s is when he's writing this. So you know, when, when did he go to Corinth? Well, maybe it was the earlier 50s, maybe it was the late 40s. I don't know, but it's pretty early on. And that's what he delivered to them. But he had received this statement even before that. So scholars, they like to study these things and figure out, well, when exactly did Paul get this statement of faith? Because, you know, the people's names in it, you know, these are, these are big players. Cephas, James, right? And it's got his Aramaic name. You know what I mean? This is, this is ancient stuff going back to an Aramaic culture and so on. And so it's way back there. And so the scholars, they say between five and seven years of Christ's crucifixion is the, the, um, the latest that this could, or the earliest that this could have, or the, sorry, the latest it could have been. So it, it could have been earlier than that, but it couldn't have been any later than that, which tells me this is a very ancient statement of faith. It's not something Paul made up. It's something he received and he passed on. And then you notice in verse 8, he adds himself to the end of the list. And last of all, he appeared to me. Right? Um, ver- let's go up to verse 1 now. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received. So this, this statement of faith is something he considers gospel. Now gospel is a big word. And it doesn't have anything to do with music at this point in time. Verse 2. By which you are also saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed it in vain. So the gospel is a thing you have to believe in order to be saved. So whatever the gospel is, we want to make sure we pay attention to it, right? And so what we have here is that, first of all, it has to do with Christ, which is the king of the kingdom. It's got this messianic flavor to it. Second is that he died for our sins. And third is that he was raised from the dead. And if you don't have that he was raised from the dead, you don't have the gospel. You've got part of it. And so this is, this is a big statement from the Apostle Paul here. We'll see why in just a second. So this, this ancient creed is, is, is something that goes way back to the very first generation of Christians, people that actually saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead. And then verse 12 says, there are some there that don't believe a word of it about the resurrection. Now if Christ is preached, verse 12, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you Corinthians say that there is no resurrection of the dead. So there are some people in Corinth in this church community back in the 50s that are Christ followers, but they don't believe in the resurrection. They said there's no resurrection from the dead. And I was thinking about that. What a strange thing to not believe in. Because resurrection to me is like the most normal idea in the world. I mean, come on, we have Easter every year, right? Where we we think about resurrection, you know, we have Resurrection Sunday every year. It's built into the schedule. And then, you know, when somebody comes up here and preaches on resurrection in like June, they're like, hey, what are you doing? You know, that's it's not material for this month. But, uh, you know, sometimes that happens. You know, so we know about resurrection. Does resurrection seem strange to you? I don't know. It, it just never seems strange to me. But in the first century, it was totally out there. It was like, like, if I came up here and I started talking to you about teleportation, you'd be like, Tele- what? Telephone? Te- no, teleportation. Like, beam me up, Scotty, Psh, to the next room. Scramble your atoms, you know, send you through the window. Right? You'd be like, you're out of here. You're out of your mind. You lost it. There's your marbles. They're rolling on the ground. You know, you just not in your, no. That's how resurrection would seem in the first century. And so how, how did I get that perspective? Well, first of all, the thing that led me to think about that is the fact that they asked the question. You know, they, 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 they had this issue. They said, there were some people there saying there's no resurrection of the dead. And you've got to have a reason to say that, especially if you're a Christian. And so I came across a, 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 these funeral, uh, not funeral, uh, tombstone epitaphs from the ancient world that have been dug up 
And here are some of them I wanted to share with you. Okay, the first one says, if you want to know who I am, the answer is ash and burnt embers. <laughs> That's pleasant. Not RIP, but um, ash and embers, right? And this is pretty emblematic of a lot of them that have been dug up by the archaeologists. Here's another one. We are nothing. See, reader, how quickly we mortals return from nothing to nothing. That's another one for you. I'm not suggesting these for you, by the way. I'm, I'm just trying to orient you a little bit to how people in the ancient world thought about the afterlife. And most people, at least according to what we have on this uh, tombstone evidence, something like 90% have no mention of any afterlife at all. It's statements more like this. Here's a very famous one. I didn't exist. I existed. I don't exist. I don't care. <laughs> I put the Latin there for you. Non fui, fui, non sum, non curo. And it was used so frequently that it was abbreviated with just the first letter from each word. N, F, F, N, S, N, C. So that was their RIP. So they didn't have to write the whole thing out because, like, it was so popular, they just put those letters. It's cheaper. You know, getting a, a, a tombstone in, in, inscribed was big money. And believe me, they charged per letter. As now, they charge per letter, you know, and, and it took a lot of money to, to buy a decent funeral plot then as now. And so this was very common. I didn't exist. I existed. I don't exist. I don't care. Something, huh? Here's another one. This is kind of a hedonist approach. Friends who read this, this, sometimes they address you as the reader. Listen to my advice. Oh boy, here we go. Mix wine. Tie the garlands around your head. Drink deep. And do not deny pretty girls the sweets of love. When death comes, earth and fire consume everything. So this is another one of these tombstone epitaphs from the ancient world. I'm not sure exactly what century, but during the Roman period, uh, uh, certainly overlapping with when these Corinthians were dealing with this resurrection issue. So uh, what, what I've discovered from, from uh, reading about this is that of the known inscriptions, scholars estimate only 10% expressed a belief in the afterlife. So that means most people basically thought this life is all there is. That's it. Just this life. For most, and then those who believed in the afterlife, the afterlife was at best a shadowy, bleak existence in Hades, and at worst, a time of suffering where the gods get you back for what you did. And so, of those who did believe in the afterlife, they weren't looking forward to it. Uh, and then some would, some would be looking forward to it a little bit, just because even if you're in this shadowy, bleak existence, maybe at least you're with the, the loved one that died before you, such is the case for this Gentlemen here, the cruel fates, this is his tombstone, the cruel fates have left me a sad old age. I shall always be searching for you, my darling Asiatica. That's his lover there. Sadly shall I often imagine your face to comfort myself. My consolation will be that soon I shall see you when my own life is done and my shadow is joined with yours. Sort of nebulous idea of you're living on, you're not really going anywhere exciting, sort of like going to this mythic realm of the underworld called Hades, where the god Hades would uh, have his way with you. And then there were the philosophers. And the philosophers, we're talking about maybe uh, people that would get exposed to Greek philosophy would be the elite, people who could afford education. Education was all private in the ancient world, especially in a city like Corinth. Maybe in Corinth there'd be something like uh, 3 to 10% of the people that could afford any kind of education at all. And education in the ancient world was Greek philosophy. I mean, there were various, uh, various kinds of Greek philosophies, uh, but you're, gonna, you're, you're, you're all going to read Plato. And so this is what Plato says about the afterlife. Well, let me just set this up for you a bit. Socrates was Plato's teacher, okay? And Socrates had a habit of questioning authority. And so at a certain point, he didn't stop when he probably should have, and he got brought into court and convicted of corrupting the youth, blaspheming the gods, and so on, because he, he just would never leave things alone. He just constantly questioned things and, and messed with the, the status quo, the system, and so on. And so he got the death penalty for that, and he was told he had to drink a poison called hemlock. And it was a po poison that killed him kind of slowly, 
So he was able to have conversation after he had already drunk it, but before he, had, he was dead. Okay? And it's a poison that kills you from your feet up. So, you know, your feet go numb, and then, you know, as it goes up, and then it, once it gets to your heart, you die. And so this is a, a book that Plato wrote about Socrates and about what it was like with him uh, sitting there before he died, well, while he was on his way to dying, and everybody shows up sad because their, their, their guru, their, their coach in life, their philosopher, is being executed, you know, and... He's going to die, and he's not going to be around anymore. And they all have these gloomy faces on, and Socrates is like, what are you guys doing? This is like my birthday here. Let's celebrate. And they're like, what? And so um, Socrates, and who knows if Socrates said any of this. Plato's the one that wrote it. I mean, he could be pulling all our legs. But uh, this is what he says. We believe, do we not, that death is the separation of the soul from the body, and that the state of being dead is the state in which the body is separated from the soul and exists alone by itself. The soul is separated from the body and exists alone by itself. Is death anything other than this? So for, for the philosophers, and this is a very small segment of the population, death is just the separation of the soul from the body. It's not bad. Death is good for them. Altogether, then, you think that such a man would not devote himself to the body, but would, so far as he was able, turn away from the body and concern himself with the soul? Yes, absolutely. So long as we have the body and the soul is contaminated by such an evil, we shall never attain completely to what we desire. That is the truth. So, so long as you're in a body, you're just, you're, you're just totally confounded by deceptions and lies and the evils of the body. I mean, you're just really lost. It's your body that's the problem, according to the philosophers. By the way, I totally disagree with this, just for the record. <laughs> Anyhow, for the body keeps us... Where did I leave off? Okay, uh, we never get... Okay, for the body keeps us constantly busy by reason of its need of sustenance. You have to feed the body. And moreover, if diseases come upon it, forget about it, then we'll never be able to find truth. And the body fills us with passions and desires and fears and all sorts of fancies and foolishness so that, as they say, it really and truly makes it impossible for us to think at all. The body and its desires are the only cause of wars. You know why we have wars? It's because we have bodies. That's what's wrong with the world. If we didn't have bodies, we'd be fine. Like, who talks like this? So bizarre. Um, the body and its desires, yeah, if you didn't have people, you wouldn't have wars either, you know? Maybe there'd be animal wars. Who knows? The body and its desires are the only cause of wars and factions and battles. For all wars are rise for the sake of gaining money, and we are compelled to gain money for the sake of the body. We are slaves to the body's service. Also, so all of these things, we have no leisure for philosophy. But the worst of all is that if we do get a bit of leisure and turn to philosophy... The body is constantly breaking in upon our studies and disturbing us with noise and confusion. You know what's wrong with the world? Bodies. We've got to get out of our bodies. You know, you can just imagine how like a, a cult leader could get a hold of this and commit mass suicide or something. You know, pretty scary stuff. And I'm not saying anybody's done that, but uh, it just just came to mind. All right, I won't bore you with the rest of Plato. It's even worse in Greek, though. All right, so second century A.D., so about 100 years after the people in Corinth, this is what a very educated person said about Christians. He wrote a whole book against us, a whole series of books, called The True Logos. Because, like, what we believe is obviously stupid. So he says, Those who are long since dead, which later will arise from the earth, clothed with the selfsame flesh, and you can hear him, like, spit on the ground when he gets to that part, as during life... For such a hope is simply one which might be cherished by worms. Only a worm would want the body back again. For what sort of human soul is that which would still long for a stinking body? I put in stinking. Okay. That had been subject to corruption. For the soul, indeed, he might be able to provide an... Come on. Oh, did I miss it there? An everlasting life. While dead bodies, on the, other, on the contrary, are, as Heraclitus observes... More worthless than dung. Dung's a very polite British way to say poop. Bodies are more worthless than dung. God, however, neither can 
nor will declare contrary to all reason that the flesh, which is full of those things which is not even honorable to mention, is to exist forever. For he is the reason of all things that exist and therefore can do nothing either contrary to reason or contrary to himself. So these are just a few perspectives on the afterlife from the ancient world itself because today the options are totally different. We have totally different ideas of what could happen after somebody dies. In the ancient world, here are your three options. Number one, the overwhelming majority of people would say nothing happens when you die. So live it up. They had a saying, let's eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. That was, that was a, a common belief among people. The second most popular was the more of a mythological view of the afterlife. They said you go to this shadowy underworld with a three-headed dog to sort of guard you from ever escaping, and depending on how you live, different things would happen to you. So that's number two. And then that's for the more superstitious people. And then number three are the very enlightened philosophers. The philosophers said, death, death is nothing to me. It's just my day of freedom, my emancipation, right? Philosophers would talk like that. Everybody would be like, you got too much time on your hand, man. Too much time. Think too much. So here comes these Christians into the scene, and they're like, resurrection. And everyone's like, what? Resa what? Body back? What are you talking about, man? Think about it. It's like a banana. You put it in the ground... And it, you know, it gets worms, it stinks, right? You, you want that back. And this is what's going on in Corinth. And this is why the Apostle Paul is saying, look, why is there some of you who say there's no resurrection of the dead? How does he answer it? He answers it by linking together our resurrection with Christ's resurrection and making a solid connection there that cannot be broken. Check it out, verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. So some people are saying, well, look, there's no resurrection of the dead. He's like, well, you, that's how you want to play it? Then Christ wasn't raised from the dead either. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is useless, worthless, pathetic. What are we doing here, people? You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are the scum of the earth, right? We are of all men most to be pitied. We are the most pathetic out of all of the people in the world. This is some big words. This guy's a Christian? Hold on, verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. And so the idea is that if you're going to deny the resurrection idea, then you're denying that even Christ was raised from the dead because the two are so connected that you can't separate one from the other. Because we're supposed to look at Christ's resurrection and say, that's what it's going to be like for me. right? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Read the instances where Jesus appeared and where Jesus... Ate fish, hallelujah, you can eat fish in the resurrection body, and honey, and you know, whatever else he had for lunch that day. You know, um, that's cool. And you know, they recognized him, and he could talk, and he didn't have three arms now, it was still just two. You know, we're supposed to look at Christ's resurrection and say, that's what it's going to be like for us. There's no way to disconnect those two. But he says, well, let's just do a little thought experiment here. Let's just assume you guys are right. There is no resurrection, Christ is not raised, right? then your preaching is, is, or his preaching, Paul's preaching, is totally vain. Now, vain is, is sort of a nice way to say stupid, right? Empty, foolish, ridiculous, futile. Your faith is like the same. It's empty. We're false witnesses. Our faith is absolutely worthless. And so, like, if we're going to, if we're going to have the resurrection of Christ... It's got to be a cornerstone. It's got to be the real center of who we are as Christians. And if we, and if we, if we lose the resurrection of Christ, then if, if the Bible's right, we're, our faith is empty, it's worthless, we're liars, we're still in our sins, and of all people on the earth, we are the most pathetic. What are we doing here on a Sunday morning? You know what I'm saying? If Christ is not raised, let's just go home. 
right? And then he says, but Christ has been raised. And here's the, the, the Apostle Paul saw him, right? So, I mean, you're going to have a really hard time convincing him out of it, you know, to say the old resurrection doesn't really happen. He saw him with his own eyes, verse 8, right? Then he appeared to me as one untimely born. He saw Christ after Christ had been killed, right? So th- that's a non-negotiable here. And so if that's legit, then the resurrection to come is also legitimated. I can't, I can't read through all 54, 58, what is it, 58 verses with you this morning, so I'm skipping around a bit. You have to um, forgive me for that. But I want to go to verse uh, 30 something, 30, I don't know, 32. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. This is, this is a part that's really puzzling to me, because I remember uh, Maddie Murphy used to quote this uh, bad company corrupts good morals part. Is that what it says? Bad yeah, bad company corrupts good morals. And, and, uh, and I was just, you know, I, I didn't really put that together with being in 1 Corinthians 15. It's like, well, 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter of the Bible. I mean, 58 verses of pure resurrection material and theology, right? I mean, it's really nothing like it anywhere else. I mean, resurrection is mentioned plenty of places, but this is really the center. So what is this bad company corrupts good morals? Why, why is that in the resurrection chapter? What's the connection between some sort of belief about what happens in, you know, after you die and how you live now? You know, there's got to be some sort of connection here because he says, look, if there's not a resurrection, let's all just do what feels good. And then he says, don't do that because there is a resurrection. Bad company corrupts good morals. So there's, there's, there's some sort of connection about believing that you are not going to just sort of escape the shell of your body and go off to Jupiter, or that this is the end, or that the under gods are going to mess with you in the afterlife. Like, if, if you get rid of those ideas, and you have this idea of being on earth in your body forever, I guess you live differently. I don't know. I mean, Romans chapter 12, uh, I was thinking of that one where it says that we should be a living sacrifice. You know what he says there? This is your body. Your body is to be a living sacrifice. Whoa, that's interesting. So I think what we do in our bodies matters. You know what I mean? I think it matters to God what we do in our bodies, with our bodies, and, and so on. You know, not that what we do with our mind doesn't matter too. You know, God's looking at the whole picture. Verse 35 now, now we have to overcome the banana question. I never did deal with that. Okay, so verse 35, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? How are the dead raised, Paul? How are they raised? This is the sort of question you say when you don't believe something and you want to mess with somebody else and their beliefs to sort of like trip them so they fall on the ground, right? Well, I hear what you're saying, John. You know, the dead are going to be raised, but how are they raised? Now, he's got to give me a scientific account of the whole matter, right? And with what kind of body do they come? Ha ha! Gotcha! Answer me this. What kind of body are they going to come with? You know? Because if you have a banana theory of resurrection, then you've got this rotten, dead old body, and now that body is just like a zombie. It comes back to life, and it's all rotten and gross, and, but it's alive. And you don't, you don't often see the apostle... This, this exercise to say something as he is in verse 36. I mean, it's very strong. Very strong. He just doesn't talk like this much. You fool! You idiot! You, uh, come on! Are you kidding me? That's the best you got? What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And he goes on to this plant analogy. You know, you take a seed and you put it in the ground. I still don't understand this. Like, you take this, like, I don't know, semi-dead husk with a little kernel of green whatever in the middle of it. You put it in dirt of all places. And then what do you do? You pour water on it. Now you've got mud. 
It's crazy. And it grows into something. You know, it could grow into a, like one of these trees. You know, or it could grow into a, any kind of plant, depending on what kind of seed it is. But this is the analogy the apostle uses because, you know, you put that seed in the ground and what grows out of it? Is it the seed? Something different than the seed? It's not, it's not totally different than the seed. Because I, I think, like, on one hand, it is the seed. Like, because the middle of the seed turned into that. Right? But on the other hand, it's not the seed. Right? So, like, there's, there's a, some sense in which the plant and the seed are contiguous. That there is this sort of, you know, one came from the other, and it's really the same thing. It's just one's bigger than the other. And then there's another sense where we'd be like, it's nothing like the seed. The seed was this little tiny thing that I could put on the shelf for years and it would just sit there and do nothing. The tree, however, does all kinds of stuff. It releases those little helicopters that fly down and squirrels run in it, you know, and kids swing on it. So, they're, they're, and that's what he chooses to describe the resurrection body. So it's not a zombie body that comes out of the ground. It's like a seed to a plant, okay? The plant uses up everything that was in the seed. It's not like there's still the seed. It's not like you plant a plant, you plant a seed, and then you come back later as a plant, and then you like reach underneath it and grab the seed. You're like, I'm going to use that over here now. You know, it's not like that. The seed's gone. The seed became the plant, right? And so the, our current body becomes the resurrected body when Jesus returns. The, 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 so, so it's not like a brand new body that uh, comes from like the body factory and gets dropped off with like a parachute. You know, it's not that quite, but it's, it's not a zombie body either. And, it, and if you've got problems, we all have different problems, you know, as, as we age and so on. Like, those get fixed. So it's an upgrade, too. It's 2.0. <laughs> body 2.0. Right? And we saw that with Jesus, because he was beaten severely. And, and when he came back uh, to life three days later, it's not like he needed, you know, immediate medical attention from the disciples. You know? Uh, the, Mary saw him there, she thought he was a gardener. You know, he didn't look like beat, a beaten, bloody pulp, because she, like, unless gardeners looked like that back then, I don't know. But um, he looked like a regular guy. You know, he was fixed, he was healed. You know, we, we see in uh, Micah, I believe it is, where God talks about how the lame and the outcasts are going to be gathered together and they're going to be healed. Or Isaiah uh, 35, right, John, uh, where the lame leap like the deer. I think that's uh, Isaiah 35. You know, so like if, if you've got something wrong, you get an upgrade, you know, and it's free. And it doesn't get slower with time like all the other upgrades I get on my computer. Um, so verse, uh, I get lost here. All right, verse 37. That which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, and he, and he starts to get into all these different kinds. Verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a banana body, right? It perishes, it corrupts, it gets spots, and then stinks after a while, right? It's sown that way. It's like your dead body is a seed that's, that's planted in the ground. But what comes out when Jesus comes back? An imperishable body. Ultimate freshness. Verse 43, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Death is the ultimate weakness, isn't it? It is sown a natural body, or a soulish body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Some people reading this part, they say, Okay, I got it, Sean. It's like a ghost. <laughs> a spiritual body, you know? Like, they go from spiritual to spirit. So it's like a spirit body. Right? And so, you know, you can just do all kinds of creepy stuff and, and, and mess around there and the resurrect. No, I don't think that's what it's saying at all. Jesus' body could be touched. He said flat out himself, I'm not a ghost. Because they were freaked out when he just appeared. Right? He said, look, I'm not a ghost. That's not, I'm not, uh, a, he doesn't use the word ghost, it's like a, a phantom a phantasm or something. You know, but he says, I'm not, I'm not that. Look, come touch me. Give me some food. Let me eat. You know, I'm a real person. You know, you can feel me. Right? And so, 
so what does it mean, a spiritual body? Well, the idea of spiritual and physical being separate is a, is a relatively modern concept. It only goes back a few hundred years, that really strong dichotomy to Rene Descartes, the famous philosopher. But before that, like, you could have the idea of spiritual and physical at the same time, and it wasn't an issue. Right? And so, think of it like a car. Let's imagine that you have a car that runs on gas. I know that's kind of a stretch, but uh, just go with me. Go with me. And you get in a time machine, and you travel 50 years into the future. And you go, you go car shopping, right? And, you're, and, you, and you're, just, you're just blown away by how similar everything looks. You know, they still have wheels on them. They still have doors. still have a trunk. Or if you're in England, a boot. And, you know, they've got mirrors, and like the styles are a little different, but you're like, man, I really thought 50 years from now we'd be all in jets flying around or something, you know? And then you, and you go and you talk to the guy and you say, well, what is this, you know, what's so great about this car? You know, I, come, I came from 50 years back and cars look just the same. And the salesman says to you, this car doesn't run on gas. And, and the salesman goes on to explain that there is some new energy source that nobody in, in our time has ever heard of that this car runs on, and it never runs out, and it never pollutes either. And it's better than gas. You'd be like, I'll take one, right? <laughs> Try to take it back with you, maybe, huh? And so I think that's, that's more what it's like. It's not what your body looks like in the sense of you're not going to have four arms now. I mean, what would you do with the other two? Where, where are they going to be? Like, in the front, how would you sit? Seriously. <laughs> four arms would just screw everything up. How many legs you want? You know, you want four legs and you can never let... Come on. The design is good. God came up with it. Two eyes, two arms, two legs, two nostrils, you know, two ears. It's, it's a great design. It does so many cool things. I mean, it's got some problems right now, right? But those problems are going to get fixed, right? But it's going to run on something different. Whereas the old body was soulish or, or based on uh, sort of like, I don't know, Windows 95 technology. Like, the new one is going to run on this spirit stuff. You know, it's going to be a spiritual body in the sense that what's under the engine is going to be different. How is it going to be different? Well, it's never going to wear out. It's never going, you're never going to die anymore. So that's, that's kind of an advantage, I think, to the new body. Um, so this is, how, this is how the apostle goes about answering these, these issues and these questions Let's, let's skip ahead to my favorite part. Let's go to verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. I'm telling you a secret. Shh. I'll tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Right? Because what's the next question? Well, what if I don't die? If I don't die, do I get the resurrection body? What if I'm alive when Jesus comes back? He says, well, look, not everybody's going to die. There's still going to be Christians here when Jesus comes back. But we're all going to be changed. You still get the upgrade, huh? That's a good deal. Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, so that means it's going to be quick, right? At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, I think there are seven of those in Revelation 11, uh, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we'll, we will all be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. Verse 53, immortality. That means not can die. M is a prefix, means like the I in the front means not. Mortal, mortality, mortal means you can die. So immortality means you can't die anymore. It's a, it's, it's a very good thing to have in a body. Right? So that's immortality. But when this perishable will have put on imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? That's just incredible because there is a real sting to death, isn't there? Death stings, you know? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I was thinking about Jesus as being this, this one who's, who's gone through the whole thing already. He's gone through the death experience. He's come out the other side. He's alive, right? In, in Revelation chapter 1, around verse 18, when John first meets Jesus, he doesn't know who it is because Jesus is like totally scary looking there. 
and he falls on the ground like a dead guy. And Jesus says, hey, look, it's me. I was the one who was, a, who was dead, and I'm alive, and have defeated death, right? I've got the keys to death and the grave with me, right? Like Jesus, he's the forerunner, he's the captain, he's the prototype, he's done it, he's conquered death. I mean, you think about it. I was listening to a series on the history of Rome. Julius Caesar was an awesome general. If, if you count awesome by like winning battles and, and doing incredibly evil things, torturing people and like, you know, annexing lands of French people and Germans and whatnot. Uh, but, you know, like he really added a lot of territory. But, you know, he was conquered right in the Senate, stabbed by the, the, his fellow Romans, stabbed to death, right? And I was thinking about Augustus Caesar, you know, he conquered so much and then he died, you know. And then you have these great, uh, you know, before him, Alexander the Great. After him, you've got Napoleon. You know, you've got these, these people that rise up and they conquer, right? But then they're all conquered by death. Every one of them. Everybody gets conquered by death. Our guy, our hero, our leader, he conquered death. I mean, that's got to give him something. I mean, he conquered death. Nobody conquers death. People can conquer other people by killing them, but nobody conquers death except Jesus. So Jesus conquers death. And, that's got to, and I think that should make us different as Jesus people, as the resurrection people, as people who have a faith that this life is not all there is. And evacuating to you know, the stars or something is not an option either. Like, we're here and we're going to stay here. You know, we, we might die, but when Jesus comes, he's going to bring us back to life. You know, and I think that's got, that should somehow change who we are, how we act, how we live. And so, like, the last verse of 1 Corinthians 15 tells us the whole reason for the chapter, the application point, if you will. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable. We had a basketball game yesterday when my cousin Craig was playing, and uh, Mark Thomas was also playing. And so Craig's over here. If, uh, if you look in the back, you just raise your hand. He, you know, he's, he's not short. And Mark Thomas is 12 years old, you know. And Mark uh, was trying to get the ball away from Craig and uh, collided with him and looked up and said, Man, you're like a wall. <laughs> Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the... Like, we're supposed to be like Craig versus Mark Thomas on the basketball court. You know what I mean? You're supposed to be steadfast. Because of the resurrection, you're supposed to be steadfast. Because we look at Jesus and we say, look, he did it already. And we have confidence to believe that in the future it's going to happen for us too. Because of that, we can be steadfast. We can be immovable. And always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that your toil, your labor, what you do is not for nothing. It's not in vain. It's not for no purpose in the Lord, because we are the resurrection people, and we are going to be raised from the dead when Jesus comes back. So I think it should look different. I think our lives should look different. I think, I think we need to, to sort of um, let this truth sink into our, ourselves to the deepest part, so that we really believe it, even in an intense situation in life, where we might be in a life-threatening situation, and it's either save our own skin, or do something radical, and, you know, Christ-like in that situation that would make a difference. But if you're totally afraid of death, you're, you're handicapped, you know? So let me pray to close out. Father in heaven, we thank you for the words of this scripture. We thank you for the hope of the resurrection. We praise you as being the God of creation, the God of design, who came up with the idea of a human body and human beings and that has plans to redeem it because to you, it is not a lost cause. It's not like a hurt relationship. It's not like a broken car. It's not like an amputated leg. You're powerful enough and brilliant enough to take our perished bodies and fix them, heal them, redeem them, bring them back to life. Because you are the God of redemption. You are the God of resurrection. You are the God with whom nothing shall be called impossible. We praise you as the God of resurrection. We ask you to help us to be the resurrection people, to be people that put away the fear of death because we're so confident 
that we will again be raised. I ask you to help us to live in a way that honors you, that honors our bodies, that honors what you have given us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Well, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to leave a comment for this episode, please stop by restitudio.org and find Podcast 80, Resurrection People, and leave a note there. I hope you're going somewhere this Sunday to celebrate the resurrection. This is really the biggest day of the year for Christianity, as I hope became clear from what you just heard in 1 Corinthians 15, that because Christ is risen, our faith is does have substance and it is useful. So uh, please find some place to go this Sunday. If you're in the Albany, New York area, why not drop by Living Hope Community Church and stop by. We have more information about Living Hope on restitudio.org right at the bottom on the homepage where I have a link to the church. So I hope to see some of you there. And if not, we'll see you online. Also, if you'd like to hear more about the resurrection, I've linked three previous podcast episodes in the show notes, including podcast 56, which is a rebroadcast of William Lane Craig's excellent evidence for the resurrection, podcast 57, which gives a talk by N.T. Wright on the resurrection, and then podcast 47, which has Richard Hayes talking about the implications of the resurrection. So resurrection is huge in Christianity. It's huge in Christian theology. It's really the the core and uh, foundation stone of our faith upon which the claim of Jesus as the Christ uh, finds validation and vindication. So I encourage you to look into that. Also, if you're listening to this on the website, uh, you may want to subscribe using your phone or your tablet. Just get yourself a podcast app and then search for Restitudio and you can get the next episode downloaded automatically for you. Uh, Right now, we're producing this show on Thursdays and Sundays, so then you can download it right when it comes out, listen to it in the kitchen, listen to it in the car, listen to it while you're exercising. We'll see you next time, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.